Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 202, Siberia, part 1. Last time, we went over some little-known facts about Ivan IV, also known as Ivan Grozny. Today, I'm starting a multi-part series on one of the coldest, most formidable, and intriguing places on Earth, Siberia. Before I get into today's episode, I'd like to announce an expansion of the Russian Rulers podcast into Patreon. Starting in a few weeks, I'll be beginning a subscription-based podcast that will review the entirety of Russian history from the beginning for a small monthly charge, along, of course, with other benefits. Now, I've struggled over the past 10 years on how to help pay for the time I've spent on the podcast, and I've greatly appreciated all the donations over the years, and yet I didn't want to make it onerous to my listeners, you know, having lots of advertising or anything like that. But I think this is a way that I'm going to be able to provide more for you, and you know, I'm kind of starting from the beginning again, but adding a lot of new and interesting texture and information that I didn't do when I first started this 10 years ago. Oh, and by the way, I'm still going to be producing free episodes here. Now, here's some of the books that I'll be using over the next few episodes about Siberia. I start with Travels in Siberia by Ian Fraser, In Siberia by Colin Thuborn, The Siberians by Farley Mowat, My Sister's Mother, A Memoir of War, Exile, and Stalin's Siberia by Donna Seleka Urbikis. I've also got Baikal, Sacred Sea of Siberia by Peter Matheson. A History of Russia by Nicholas Ryazanovsky and Mark Steinberg, and Once in Future Empire from Prehistory to Putin by Philip Longworth. Now, I've used other ones, you know, books by Hosking and Martin Sixsmith. The other ones are primary of what I'm going to be using here. Well, let's start on this incredible land. Siberia is vast. I mean, you cannot underestimate how huge this is. It covers over 13.1 million square kilometers, or about 5.1 million square miles. Well, unless you're a surveyor or have a better imagination than I do, those are some numbers that are kind of hard to put your, wrap your mind around. Well, here's some perspective. The United States of America is about 9.8 million square kilometers, or 3.7 million square miles, about 75% smaller, or 25% small, about 75% the size of Siberia. Siberia represents 77% of the total landmass of Russia. Now, China, if you want to think of it this way, is slightly smaller than the USA at about 3.7 million square miles. Just imagine, it's like 1.4 million square miles larger, Siberia, than China. It's amazing. When it comes to population... Siberia presently has about 33 million inhabitants, and Russia itself has approximately 147 million total. So Siberia represents about 23% of the country's total. Of course, this is for good reason why there's you know, fewer people, and we're going to find out you know, in our overview of the region why, and you can you know, probably predict some of the areas. Uh, the one place in Siberia that is most awe-inspiring, according to those who have visited, and, and I've seen pictures, it's Lake Baikal. It's about 400 miles or 640 kilometers long, 
But the most astonishing thing about Lake Baikal is its depth at about 5,200 feet, I mean a mile, or 1,632 meters. Its formation is a valley where two great tectonic plates are pulling apart. It's said in a few million years it will be the site of a new ocean, but for now it contains about one-fifth of the fresh water found on Earth. About 300 streams flow into the lake, but only one river, the Angara, flows out. The river is a tributary to the Yenisee River, which we will learn a little bit more about later, although not in a terribly pleasant way. Back to Lake Baikal itself. To understand its massive capacity, it would take 400 years to drain it if no additional water would enter. That's basically going through the Angara River. Even more astonishing is that it would take all of the water flowing through the Amazon, Ganges, Mississippi, Nile, and Congo rivers one year to refill Lake Baikal. It is also considered one of the cleanest lakes and is home to thousands of different species of life, half of whom are found nowhere else on Earth. And finally, here's a description of Baikal from a famous person who was banished here. Archpriest Avakum, and this comes from 1662. Quote, high hills and exceedingly high rocky cliffs are all around it, over 20 times 1,000 versts, and more have I dragged myself and nowhere seen anything like unto these. Exceedingly many birds, geese, and swans swim upon the sea covering like snow. It hath fishes, sturgeon, and salmon, sterlet, and omul, and whitefish, and many other kinds. The water is fresh and hath great seals and sea lions in it. When I dwelt in Mezen, I saw naught like unto these in the big sea. And the fishes, there are plentiful. The sturgeon and salmon are surprisingly fat. Thou canst fry them in a pan, for there will be naught but grease. And all this hath been wrought by Christ in heaven for mankind, so that, Resting content, he shouldest render praise unto God. And if you want to see a great pictorial of Baikal, I highly recommend the book Baikal, Sacred Sea of Siberia by Peter Mathewson with photographs by Boyd Norton. It is utterly breathtaking. Now to get a better grip on Siberia as a fantastic place, let's start with the fact that within its borders, there are 15 mountain ranges. In comparison, the United States has three major ones and five minor ranges. This, though, does not begin to give you a sense of the incredible diversity of geography within Siberia. The types of terrain contained within this vast land are equally impressive. You'll find a polar desert, tundra, alpine tundra, taiga, mountain forests, temperate broadleaf forests, temperate steppe, and dry steppe. Now, most people think of Siberia as some bleak, snow-covered, icy place with no place to grow anything edible, but they would be terribly wrong. While the growing season is short in days, it is long in hours of sunlight in the summer. But before we get into the type of agriculture that does indeed exist in Siberia, we need a further lesson in geography and how it affects its weather. In Europe, they benefit from the warm air that is circulated due to the presence of the Atlantic Ocean. The Ural Mountains on the western edge of Siberia effectively blocks that effect. 
Secondly, Siberia cannot benefit from the war air masses, the warm air masses from Central Asia, as the mountain ranges like the Himalayas are preventing that, as well as in the Russian Far East. Uh, the one reason, region not blocked is the north, obviously, which means lots of blasts of Arctic air. To top it off, much of the land in Siberia is quite acidic and unable to grow much. Additionally, rain is not common, and snow typically melts quickly in the late spring and summer, thereby not soaking into the ground. There is hope, though, in southern Siberia, where there exists areas of good soil and in western Siberia near the Ural Mountains that has quite a bit of arable land. The best places to grow crops are near the Ob River around the city of Tomsk and in the Tobolsky district in the Tayuman Oblast. With the building of the Trans-Siberian Railroad, farmers in Siberia were able to send crops into the heart of Russia for the first time. But there was a problem. It caused a severe crash in agricultural commodity prices in the late 1800s. It was so bad that a tariff had to be imposed in 1897, and it was something like five times the price of the food in order to alleviate some of the problems that were causing, especially in Ukraine. Now, the history of agriculture in Siberia is an interesting one, as it came quite late to the native peoples for apparent reasons, uh, the weather being the most uh, obvious one. Neolithic peoples were able to scratch out a meager sustenance based on grains, grasses, and tubers that were available. Most of the food gathered, though, was through hunting, gathering, as well as the domestication of sheep, cows, and horses. While cattle provided much of the nourishment of the early peoples, especially during the establishment of the Kyrgyz Khanate in the 8th century AD, millet, barley, wheat, and hemp were grown as well. The next surge in agriculture came when the Stroganov family was allowed to and given the right to colonize the quote-unquote empty lands beyond the Urals by Ivan IV. I'll be returning to the Stroganovs in a little bit, as they're one of the most prominent families in the Russification of Siberia. I want to discuss some of the ancient people who inhabited the lands now known as Siberia before the Russians started their incursions around the mid to late 1500s. And I'll tell you, there some came earlier, but not quite as much. The first known inhabitants of these lands were around 45,000 BCE. Who they were is still a mystery, but what we know through the field of genetics is that they migrated both east toward Europe and west into the Americas through the Bering Land Bridge, around 20,000 BCE. The first peoples we know anything, uh, really know anything about are the Sintashta, who lived there around 2200 to 1800 BCE. Now, this is not their name that they were known by at the time. We really don't know what they called themselves. But it's based on an archaeological site east of the Urals and the Chelyabinsk Oblast. Some earlier peoples inhabited the region but these were the most remarkable because of one finding, the presence of the earliest spoke-wheeled chariot found anywhere on Earth. And this was a major technological breakthrough. And it's rare to find an invention like this in a steppe culture like the Sintashta. I mean, the Egyptians didn't have this. And they were one of the great civilizations around that time. Now, some would argue that the actual first known inhabitants of Siberia were known as the Corded Ware people. 
about 2900 to 2350 BCE. And they would be right, but they really weren't a tight community as they stretched from the Rhine to the west to the Volga in the east. While the Sintashta were genetically related to the Corded Ware people, their ancestors may or may not have had much of a presence in Siberia. What came next was the Andronovo culture, which flourished between around 2800 BCE. They were another Bronze Age people like their predecessors. Their name derives from the archaeological site in Andronovo Krasnoyarsk Krai. They were replaced by the Karasuk culture and who were themselves replaced by the Tagar culture and the Tashtik culture, all of whom have been considered Indo-Europeans. These people were believed, based on genetic testing, to have moved west towards Europe. Part of the reason, we believe, is due to pressure coming from the east, and in particular, the Yenisei Kyrgyz, a Turkic people. Before I move on, I'd like to take a short detour into the languages that still exist in Siberia other than Russian. There are currently five splotches of languages not related to Paleo-Siberian either. The first is Chukotho, which is part of the Kamchatkan language group and is spoken by just a few families in that area due to pressure from the Russian government, and it is highly likely that it will disappear in the very near future. Next is Edelman, which is found in a small area in the far east of Russia. This one uses ejective sounds like t and ch, and this is quite unusual for this part of the world. Still, it does have similarities to North American native languages, especially in Canada and the northern part of the United States. Of course, this would jive with the notion that Native Americans came over the Bering Strait from Russia. A little bit more prevalent, but still rare, is the Yukagir, which is a distant relative of the Uralic group, which is partly of Finnish, Estonian, and Hungarian. Here's uh, some examples of the similarities between the two. The word I in Yukagir is met, while in Proto-Uralic it is mun. U is tet in Yukagir, and tun in Uralic. This is tin and ta in the two, and you can hear these similarities. Now next is a language known as the Nivka, spoken in eastern Siberia, and the last is Ket, who only has about 1,219 people speaking it as of 2010. What is interesting about the Ket people is that they live in one of the most godforsaken places in Siberia, on the Yenisei River. Remember I mentioned this earlier. Well, during the, much of the Tsarist regimes and accelerated under Stalin, many indigenous people were forcibly removed from their homelands to allow native Russians to take over. The Yenisei River is a place that actually no one wanted to live in, in part due to what they say are monstrously sized mosquitoes that appear every summer. As we remember in our history, of Russia, the Mongols under Genghis Khan began to move towards the country from the Mongolian steppe around 1200. They not only headed west towards Russia, but north into Siberia, although with far fewer people. These people would become the Khanate of Sibir. Genghis Khan had conquered southern Siberia around 1206, with his son Jochi subjugating the forest people known as the Urinkai, the Orats, Barga, 
Kakas, Buryats, Tuvans, Kori Tumed, and Kirgirs. Over time, the Mongols under people like Kublai Khan extended their domain over all of the peoples living in Siberia. As I said before, many believe that it wasn't until the 16th century that Russians had begun to explore Siberia, but there was really strong evidence that Novgorodians and Moscovites had indeed penetrated into western Siberia from time to time. Many of these excursions actually began in the 11th century and continued on for hundreds of years. We're now in the year 1580, and Russia is ruled by an old friend from last episode, Ivan Grozny. In July of that year, 540 Cossacks under Yermak Timofeyevich, along with 300 Lithuanian and German slaves that the Stroganovs had bought from the Tsar, invaded Siberia. These men were hired by the Stroganov family, you might call as muscle, you know, to rid the lands that Tsar Ivan had awarded them of the Mongol threat. And the leader of the family was Anaki Fyodorovich Stroganov. Now, Yermak, he's an interesting character, as he's considered somewhat of a hero by some and an adventurer by others. The reality is he was a wanted criminal who would steal from travelers in Ukraine and the Muscovite lands. In 1582, Yermak made his way into the heartland of the Khanate of Siberia, headed by Khan Kuchum. Yermak would initially be highly successful, given that the men had muskets versus the Mongols' bows and arrows. What they hadn't counted on was the harsh winter and their depleted supplies of food and bullets. Well, luckily for Yermak, Ivan gave him new supplies, and he was able to continue his success, so to say, of Siberia with mixed successes, you might say. Yermak was to die in a somewhat ironic manner. A czar, Ivan, had honored him with a silver breastplate. While trying to get away from the Mongols, Yermak drowned in the Wage River in August of 1584 because of the added weight of his silver chainmail protection. Over the coming years, though, additional troops were sent in by Ivan to expand their holdings and to finally subdue the remnants of the Mongols, or as they would become known, the Tatars. One of the most important commodities that were extracted early on from Siberia, and the reason why the Russians kept at it, was fur. Furs of incredible quantity and quality were the main impetus for adventurers to brave the harsh conditions. Of course, today, we know of the incredible riches found in Siberia, like minerals, oil, and natural gas. Still, it was fur that made it so appealing in the beginning. The conquest of the Siberian Khanate was completed around 1598, years after the death of Ivan, about the time of the end of the Rurik line with the passing of Fyodor I. There were still pockets of resistance as the Russians moved eastward, though. But the one significant advantage they had over the indigenous peoples was artillery. This was also one of the reasons why they stopped any southern expansion after they met other people with that advantage, namely the Chinese. When we look back and understand how a small number of men were able to defeat a much larger population, it wasn't just the military armaments. It was, as it was against the indigenous peoples of the Americas around the same time, disease that would do the most damage. 
Smallpox in particular ravaged the native peoples, killing many who had no natural defenses against it. It's been estimated that of the 300,000 people who lived in Siberia before the Russians invaded, more than half died of diseases that they had never come in contact with previously. The Russians, as they spread through Siberia, were known to be utterly ruthless against the natives. Whole communities were slaughtered if they refused to submit to the rule of the czars. It continued throughout the coming centuries, and even to this day, the Ainu people of the Kamchatka Karai appealed to Vladimir Putin as early as 2004 to not give some of their lands to the Japanese, who they accused of committing mass genocide against them. Their plea, though, was rejected. Returning back to the mid-1600s, and in particular to the time of Tsar Alexei, we have another group of Russians who yearn to flee the oppression that is being imposed upon them. This group is known as the Old Believers. And, by the way, don't tell them that. Don't call them an Old Believer. Many of them feel that they are the true believers, and if you use the term Old Believers, they feel it's almost insulting to some of them. Now, the reforms of Patriarch Nikon, which changed the way things like the sign of the cross was done, you know, with three fingers instead of two, the way it had been done before, or how the liturgies were performed, how many times you said Alleluia uh, during a singing of, of verses, uh, it enraged a large number of Russian Orthodox clergy and parishioners. After the changes were set, around 1666, nonconformists, again called the old believers, uh, started to lose their rights as citizens of Russia. Uh, by 1685, the arrests, tortures, and executions began in earnest. I mean, this is very similar to what happened to the Jews during the Holocaust after the Nuremberg Rules, where they were Jews were stripped of their uh, citizenship in Germany in the uh, 1930s. Now, aside from whole communities that decided to burn themselves alive, and this did happen numerous times, uh, and instead of converting to the new church protocols, many decided that the best way to live what they thought was a godly life was to get away from the authority of the government and the church, and that was to head to Siberia. There, they believed they could leave, live a purer and holier life without in interference. An interesting story is there's one such family living in southern Siberia, the Lykov family of six, they were isolated from humanity for 42 years, starting in 1936. They tried to flee the oppression of the Bolsheviks and settled into a place near the Uranat River. And it wasn't until 1978 that anyone saw them. In 1994, a book entitled Lost in the Taiga, One Russian Family's 50-Year Struggle for Survival and Religious Freedom in the Siberian Wilderness by Vasily Peskov was published. Today, only one member of the family, Agafia Karpovna Likova, still lives. Other people who fled into the harsh lands of Siberia were runaway serfs, fugitives from the law, and those who wanted to leave the harsh life of a peasant in Russia. It was not an easy life, as not only was the land and climate difficult, there were still nomadic bounds, bands related to the Mongols to deal with. By the early 1700s, that last threat was pretty much over, which allowed towns and small enclaves of people to gather and expand. 
The Siberia Governate was established in 1708 during the reign of Peter the Great. It was renamed the Tsardom of Siberia in 1762 under Catherine the Great. Many reorganizations occurred over the next hundred or so years, splitting the land into governates of their own. It is around this time that we begin to see the government using Siberia as a place to send dissidents and political enemies, something that continues to this day. Now, the next episode, the topic will revolve around the use of Siberia as a penal colony. This idea was brought up to me in our Facebook group. Was please, you know, I mean, we're getting dozens of people a week, it seems, joining us still. And this one was by listener Laura H. I'd like to also thank Heidi L. and Brian Z. for additional resources and tips for the upcoming episode. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to be on the lookout for the Patreon links that will come shortly for the new Russian Rulers series. So until then, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya.